Let me tell you a story, podcast number 70. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We're going to get right down to business today and begin with Steve reading another chapter from Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, Treasure Island. I'll be reading chapter 22, but I'll read a little bit from the end of the last chapter. The mutineers were soon only eight in number, for the man shot by Mr. Trelawney on board the schooner died that same evening of his wound. But this was, of course, not known till after by the faithful party. Part 5. My Sea Adventure Chapter 22 How my sea adventure began. There was no return of the mutineers, not so much as another shot out of the woods. They had got their rations for that day, as the captain put it, and we had the place to ourselves and a quiet time to overhaul the wounded and get dinner. Squire and I cooked outside in spite of the danger, and even outside we could hardly tell what we were at for horror of the loud groans that reached us from the doctor's patients. Out of the eight men who had fallen in the action, only three still breathed. That one of the pirates who had been shot at the loophole, Hunter, and Captain Smollett. And of these, the first two were as good as dead. The mutineer, indeed, died under the doctor's knife. And Hunter, do what we could, never recovered consciousness in this world. He lingered all day, breathing loudly like the old buccaneer at home in his apoplectic fit, but the bones of his chest had been crushed by the blow and his skull fractured in falling. And some time in the following night, without sign or sound, he went to his maker. As for the captain, his wounds were grievous indeed, but not dangerous. No organ was fatally injured. Anderson's ball, for it was Job that shot him first, had broken his shoulder blade and touched the lung, not badly. The second had only torn and displaced some muscles in the calf. He was sure to recover, the doctor said. But in the meantime, and for weeks to come, he must not walk, nor move his arm, nor so much as speak when he could help it. My own accidental cut across the knuckles was a flea bite. Dr. Livesey patched it up with plaster and pulled my ears for me into the bargain. After dinner, the squire and the doctor sat by the captain's side a while in consultation, and when they had talked to their heart's content, it being a little past noon, the doctor took up his hat and pistols, girt on on a cutlass, put the chart in his pocket, and with a musket over his shoulder, crossed the palisade on the north side and set off briskly through the trees. Gray and I were sitting together at the far end of the blockhouse to be out of earshot of our officers consulting, and Gray took his pipe out of his mouth and fairly forgot to put it back again. So thunderstruck he was at this occurrence. Why, in the name of Davy Jones, 
said he. Is Dr. Livesey mad? Why, no, says I. He's about the last of this crew for that, I take it. Well, shipmate, said Gray, mad he may not be. But if he's not, you mark my words, I am. I take it, replied I. The doctor has his idea, and if I am right, he's going now to see Ben Gunn. I was right, as appeared later, but in the meantime, the house being stifling hot, and the little patch of sand inside the palisade ablaze with midday sun, I began to get another thought into my head, which was not by any means so right. What I began to do was to envy the doctor, walking in the cool shadow of the woods, with the birds about him, and the pleasant smell of the pines, while I sat grilling with my clothes stuck to the hot rosin, and so much blood about me, and so many poor dead bodies lying all around, that I took a disgust of the place that was almost as strong as fear. All the time I was washing out the blockhouse, and then washing up the things from dinner, this disgust and envy kept growing stronger and stronger, till at last, being near a bread bag, and no one then observing me, I took the first step towards my escapade, and filled both pockets of my coat with biscuit. I was a fool, if you like, and certainly I was going to do a foolish, overbold act, but I was determined to do it with all the precautions in my power. These biscuits, should anything befall me, would keep me, at least, from starving till far on in the next day. The next thing I had laid hold of was a brace of pistols, and as I already had a powder horn and bullets, I felt myself well supplied with arms. As for the scheme I had in my head, it was not a bad one in itself. I was to go down the sandy spit that divides the anchorage on the east end from the open sea, find the white rock I had observed last evening, and ascertain whether it was there or not that Ben Gunn had hidden his boat, a thing quite worth doing, as I still believe. But as I was certain I should not be allowed to leave the enclosure, my only plan was to take French leave and slip out when nobody was watching and that was so bad a way of doing it as made the thing itself wrong. But I was only a boy, and I had made my mind up. Well, as things at last fell out, I found an admirable opportunity. The squire and Gray were busy helping the captain with his bandages. The coast was clear. I made a bolt for it over the stockade and into the thickest of the trees, and before my absence was observed, I was out of cry of my companions. This was my second folly, far worse than the first, as I left but two sound men to guard the house. But like the first, it was a help towards saving all of us. I took my way straight for the east coast of the island, for I was determined to go down the seaside of the spit to avoid all chance of observation from the anchorage. It was already late in the afternoon, although still warm and sunny. As I continued to thread the tall woods, I could hear from far before me not only the continuous thunder of the surf, but a certain tossing of foliage and grinding of boughs which showed me the sea breeze had set in higher than usual. Soon, cool draughts of air began to reach me, and a few steps farther I came forth into the open borders of the grove and saw the sea lying blue and sunny to the horizon, and the surf tumbling and tossing its foam along the beach. I have never seen the sea quiet around Treasure Island. The sun might blaze overhead, the air be without a breath, 
the surface smooth and blue, but still these great rollers would be running along all the external coast, thundering and thundering by day and night, and I scarce believe there is one spot in the island where a man would be out of earshot of their noise. I walked along beside the surf with great enjoyment, till, thinking I was now got far enough to the south, I took the cover of some thick bushes and crept warily up to the ridge of the spit. Behind me was the sea, in front the anchorage, the sea breeze, as though it had the sooner blown itself out by its unusual violence, was already at an end. It had been succeeded by light, variable airs from the south and southeast, carrying great banks of fog, and the anchorage, under lee of Skeleton Island, lay still and leaden as when first we entered it. The Hispaniola, in that unbroken mirror, was exactly portrayed from the truck to the waterline the Jolly Roger hanging from her peak. Alongside lay one of the gigs, silver in the stern sheets, him I could always recognize, while a couple of men were leaning over the stern bulwarks, one of them with a red cap, the very rogue that I had seen some hours before stride legs upon the palisade. Apparently they were talking and laughing, though at that distance, upwards of a mile, I could, of course, hear no words of what was said. All at once began the most horrid, unearthly screaming, which at first startled me badly, though I had soon remembered the voice of Captain Flint, and even though I could make out the bird by her bright plumage as she sat perched upon her master's wrist. Soon after, the jolly boat shoved off and pulled for shore, and the man with the red cap and his comrade went below by the cabin companion. Just about the same time, the sun had gone down behind the spyglass, and as the fog was collecting rapidly, it began to grow dark in earnest. I saw I must lose no time if I were to find the boat that evening. The white rock, visible enough from the brush, was still some eighth of a mile further down the spit, and it took me a goodish while to get up with it, crawling, often on all fours, among the scrub. Night had almost come when I laid my hand on its rough sides, Right below it there was an exceedingly small hollow of green turf, hidden by banks and a thick underwood about knee-deep that grew there very plentifully, and in the center of the dell, sure enough, a little tent of goatskins, like what the gypsies carry about with them in England. I dropped into the hollow, lifted the side of the tent, and there was Ben Gunn's boat, homemade if ever anything was homemade, a rude, lopsided framework of tough wood, and stretched upon that a covering of goatskin with the hair inside. The thing was extremely small, even for me, and I can hardly imagine that it could have floated with the full-size man. There was one thwart set as low as possible, a kind of stretcher in the bows, and a double paddle for propulsion. I had not then seen a coracle, such as the ancient Britons made, but I have seen one since, and I can give you no fairer idea of Ben Gunn's boat than by saying it was like the first and the worst coracle ever made by man. But the great advantage of the coracle it certainly possessed, for it was exceedingly light and portable. Well, now that I had found the boat, you would have thought I had had enough of truantry for once, but in the meantime... I had taken another notion and become so obstinately fond of it that I would have carried it out, I believe, in the teeth of Captain Smollett himself. This was to slip out under cover of the night, cut the Hispaniola adrift, and let her go ashore where she fancied. 
I had quite made up my mind that that the mutineers, after their repulse of the morning, had nothing nearer their hearts than to up-anchor and away to sea. This, I thought, it would be a fine thing to prevent, and now that I had seen how they left their watchman unprovided with a boat, I thought it might be done with little risk. Down I sat to wait for darkness, and made a hearty meal of biscuit. It was a night out of ten thousand for my purpose. The fog had now buried all heaven. As the last rays of daylight dwindled and disappeared, absolute blackness settled down on Treasure Island, and when at last I shouldered the coracle and groped my way stumblingly out of the hollow where I had supped, there were but two points visible on the whole anchorage. One was the great fire on shore, by which the defeated pirates lay carousing in the swamp. The other, a mere blur of light upon the darkness, indicated the position of the anchored ship. She had swung around to the ebb. Her bow was now towards me. The only lights on board were in the cabin, and what I saw was merely a reflection on the fog of the strong rays that flowed from the stern window. The ebb had already run some time, and I had to wade through a long belt of swampy sand where I sank several times above the ankle before I came to the edge of the retreating water, and wading in a little with some strength and dexterity, set my coracle keel downwards on the surface. It's been a while since we've read from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal, so we're going to do a couple more of her entries on this podcast. Her first one is Lines I Hear from Inmates. One young man who has me look up stuff on the internet a lot, which is part of my job, always says, you're the best. Then there was the new guy who said, do you wear contacts? I said, no, why? He said, You have the bluest of blue eyes. A new line, huh? Speaking of lines, one of our gals was, as I say, compromised and escorted off the property for intimacy with an inmate. A guy who looked a lot like singer Little Richard asked me to get him an address of a place to send his poetry to. When I emailed, I told the people I was a prison librarian and needed an address for one of my patrons. When he found out I had told the people that, he was not happy. I guess he thought I was going to say I was his friend or something. Then the other librarian heard him ask me for some information and said, Say, isn't that the same thing you asked the former librarian for? Soon after, he somehow got himself transferred out. My correctional officer buddy told me later that the guy bragged about having a way with the ladies. Wow. I guess his ploy wasn't working for him here, so he went elsewhere. And when I found out where, I contacted that librarian to give her a heads up. This section is called Prison Musings. I was walking up the hill the other night, thinking how dark it was at 8 p.m. and how it will be dark when I get off work from now until next summer. As I walked, I thought about how the guys call their rooms their house. These rooms are about 12 feet by 14 feet and have two guys to a room, except that each unit has a couple of single rooms. Men with older numbers get those. Old numbers belong to guys in their 40s, 50s, and up, who've been down a long time. There are several housing units at this prison. The chow hall is separate. The gym is separate, too, as well as our building, which has both the education programs and our libraries in it, but they have separate doors. 
Across from us is a rec hall and an arts and crafts building, a landscaping building, and a computer lab. The prison also has an admin building that contains a master control office with the dispatchers, MCU, which is a segregated unit or the whole, a mail room, hearings room, property room, visiting room, staff lounge, and some offices. The case managers are all in the admin area. I'm sure I'm forgetting places, like the laundry. The chapel, a beautiful building built by inmates with donated supplies, is used by many. Someone told me that maybe 5% of the religious inmates are for real, but I hear that the recidivism rate is only about 8% among those who get involved with religious services, which is much lower than the national average. We have about every kind of religion you can imagine here. The prison has to provide Jewish kosher food, vegetarian meals, and a sweat lodge for the Native American inmates, among other things. The natives get to smoke something during their ceremonies, which attracts more than your average native. Now, I know many people don't think the prisoners deserve the amenities I mentioned, but my theory is how you treat these guys determines what kind of men we send out to be your neighbors and mine. Hopefully, they won't victimize you if they have been somewhat rehabilitated. I figure if you treat prisoners like animals, then animals are what you send back into the world. One of my clerks told me the other day that the other librarian and I are the only ones who don't look down on them. We treat them like humans. I figure, there but for the grace of God go I. And as some other workers have told me, these are someone's sons, fathers, brothers, friends, and if they were yours, how would you like them to be treated? Along with the classes in landscaping and janitorial, We teach them how to start their own businesses so they can support themselves when they're released and so they can stay out of prison. This is called The Burglar. It's a short story by Danny Clark. I awakened just before sunrise, having heard a foreign sound inside of my home. I quietly arose from my bed and looked about the bedroom for a weapon. Finding nothing, I finally eased the door to the hallway closet open and withdrew a softball bat. Just feeling it in my hands gave me a false sense of security as I crept to the stairs and descended to the ground floor, carefully placing my bare feet on each of the carpeted steps as I did. I stopped several times to listen and confirmed that what I had heard was not part of some dream I'd been having. But the rustling assured me that I had indeed heard an intruder. Across the entryway, through the living room and toward the rear of the house, I crept with the ball bat held at the ready. The noise had not abated and seemed to be coming from the study that was just adjacent to the mudroom that led to the backyard. Someone was in my office going through my desk in search of valuables or possibly electronics, which would include my new Apple laptop. As I neared the closed door, part of me said, call the police, let them handle it. However, my ego prevailed and told me that I was the man of the house and to act like one. My wife and children were still upstairs asleep, and it was up to me to protect them. I listened at the door for several moments, trying to make out voices, and if possibly, there was more than one uninvited guest. Nothing I heard resembled a muffled voice or indicated the presence of more than one. Outside, the morning was being birthed for the new day, 
and the darkness was gradually being dispelled by the rising sun, leaving the house with a gray, gloomy, twilight kind of atmosphere. As I threw the door wide and flipped on the light switch, a pair of lifeless black eyes returned my gaze, and a broad grin showing sharp white teeth greeted me from across the room. The floor was covered with papers, and the drawers of the desk hung open. The laptop lay on the floor nearby. I was incensed at the way my property was being treated without regard to its value or the hard work I had done to acquire it. How dare you, I wanted to say to the short, fat, smiling guest leering at me, seemingly without fear. I brandished the bat only to receive a guttural growl that showed disdain for me as both a man and as a protector of the family. He almost dared me to try and exercise my right to hammer him into submission. Then slowly he inched his bulky body toward the mudroom, which had, no doubt, been the source of his entry. My mind urged me to block the exit and use my weapon while my common sense spoke against confrontation. It seemed like hours, but truly was only seconds that went by before the masked intruder exited as he had come through the unlatched doggy door that led to the backyard. As his hairy black ringed tail followed, I felt relief and gratitude that he had been a raccoon rather than something more ominous. This is Winds of Wyoming, Chapter 20. Wherein Kate is still in the hospital. Kate felt someone touch her cheek. She opened her eyes. Oh, hi, Dimple. Hello, Kate. Dimple squeezed her arm. Sorry to wake you. Kate yawned. These afternoon naps are becoming a habit. That's okay. You need sleep to heal. The elderly woman settled into a chair beside the hospital bed. Sorry I couldn't come sooner. I was in Colorado visiting my sister's. She lowered her eyebrows, a stern look in her eyes. I hear you've been living on the wild side lately. Kate grinned at her friend's fresh crop of chin hairs. Must have forgotten to pack her tweezers when she went to Colorado. I suppose you could call it living on the wild side. I'm ready for a few days, or even a few months of boredom. Dimple brightened. Well, I've got just the ticket for you. You do? Yes, Life is boring at my place. Come stay with me after the doctor releases you. Kate smiled. Release still had a wonderful ring to it. That's very sweet of you. Using the control buttons, she raised the upper portion of the bed, adjusting the bedding. But I'm planning to get a motel room here in Rollins, so I can use the computers at the library to apply for internships. Maybe she could borrow a little bit of money from Aunt Mary to survive until she found another position. Dimple frowned. You're not returning to the ranch? I'd just be in the way. Dimple's steely stare unnerved her. Even if I wasn't in the way, Kate said, there's another issue that would keep me out of the office. You mean the missing money? Laura told you? Didn't have to. Dimple said the whole valley knows. Of course, no secret was safe in Copperville. You can apply for internships from my house, Dimple said. Remember, I have that fancy new chihuahua. Surprised, Kate lifted her head. You have a dog now? 
Dimple clutched the arms of her chair and leaned forward, chin out. What did I say this time? You said you have a new chihuahua. The older woman snorted and sat back. Computer. I meant to say computer. Mike set me up with satellite service so I can use the Internet. That would help you search for another job, wouldn't it? It would. Kate thought for a moment before she nodded. Thank you. I would love to stay with you. The perky woman's indomitable spirit intrigued her. Staying with Dimple for a few days would be a great learning experience. I'll be glad to pay you for room and board. You'll do no such thing. This is my idea and my chance to get to know you better. Later, when Dimple stood to leave, she asked Kate if she could bring her anything. Kate cocked her head. Actually, I've been wishing for two things. But they're kind of silly. Whatever you want, sweetie. Within reason, of course. Well, I've been crazing rich crackers. Plus, I'd like a good novel to read. The hospital has a small library, and I've read a couple books from there. But they weren't the best. Would you mind picking up a bestseller for me? I'll pay you back. Be glad to. Dimple patted Kate's hand. I don't think it's a strange rhinestone at all. Kate smiled. You are too kind, Dimple with a Y, Louise Forbes. Two days later, exhausted by the trip from Rollins to Dimple's house, Kate leaned against a pile of pillows on the guest room bed. Her new book lay on the nightstand, but she didn't have the energy to read it, or to think any more about her conversation with the sheriff's deputy before she left the hospital. They had researched her history, and they'd also found her fingerprints on Laura's desk. She watched the lace curtains flutter in the breeze from the open window. She couldn't have asked for a more pleasant recovery room. If it wasn't for Dimple, she'd be all alone in a dark, musty motel room. The telephone rang. Moments later, Dimple called to her. It's for you, Kate. Kate wasn't sure she should pick up the phone. If it was Ramsey, the only other person who could locate her whereabouts so quickly, she didn't want to talk to him. No one else could possibly know where she was staying. Except the sheriff. She swallowed, help me, God, and retrieved the handset from the nightstand. Hello? Hey, Kate, what's the deal? I finally get a chance to visit you in the hospital, and you're gone. Her frenetic heartbeat settled into a tap dance. Hey, yourself, Mike. How did you find me? Mom told me you were planning to recuperate at Dimple's place, and the hospital told me you were discharged this morning. I did the math. Brilliant deduction, Kate said, but I'm sorry you drove all that way for nothing. Do you mind if I stop to see you on my way home? I have some news that might interest you. I'll tell Dimple you're on the way. Evidently, Mike and the sheriff had not yet crossed paths. Dimple greeted Mike with a kiss on the cheek. My favorite adopted grandson. I'm glad to see you again, even if you didn't come to see me. Oh, but I did. I have something to tell both of you. He grinned at Kate, who sat with her back against the arm of the sofa, and her legs stretched across it. Kate returned the smile. Mike was in such a good mood, it had to be positive news. For a change. She readjusted her position. Would you two care for some ice trapper? Dimple asked. Mike glanced at Kate. 
Uh, sure. Iced tea sounds great. When Dimple left the room, he handed Kate a bouquet of wildflowers wrapped in wet paper towels in a plastic bag. These are from Mom, with apologies for not being able to come today. I understand, Kate said. I know how busy she is. Please give her my thanks. She buried her face in the blossoms. These are beautiful, and they smell delicious. He motioned toward the far end of the couch. Mind if I share the cantaloupe? She snickered. Have a seat, Mr. Duncan. Dimple returned carrying a tray of tea and scones. How's your puppy dog doing? She set the tray on the coffee table. I talked with the vet this morning, Mike said. He said it took Tramp a couple tries, but he managed to stand and stagger around his kennel yesterday. Which is progress. He reached for a scone. These look great. Smell great, too. Dimple took the flowers from Kate. I'll find a vase and put these in your bedroom. Thank you, Dimple. Mike rubbed his thumb across Kate's foot. I hope you're feeling as good as you look. His caress sent a shiver through Kate, who couldn't stop her foot from jerking. He laughed and picked up two glasses of tea. So, Ms. Pittsburgh is ticklish. I'll keep that in mind. I'm sure you have more important things to remember. Kate tried to ignore the tingle in her arch. He handed her a glass slick with sweat beads. When she took it from him, their fingers touched. She ducked her head, feeling her cheeks warm. Dimple returned to sit in the chair across from Mike. She took the remaining glass of tea. How's your mom doing, Mike? Okay, considering how crazy things have been lately. I'm praying for her and for you, Dimple said, knowing God cares about what's been going on at your ranch. She plunked the glass down. Tea splashed onto the tray. I promise, based on his word, that he will bring good out of evil at the Whispering Pines. For a moment, Mike sat silent, swirling his ice cubes in the glass. Thanks, Dimple. I needed that reminder. Dimple folded her hands. So, what's this news you talked about? He brightened. Remember Matt? Dimple's creased features softened. I could never forget your sweet brother. Mike turned to Kate. Remember when I told you about him? She nodded. How many times had she relived that evening? I kept thinking about what you said, Mike said, and finally get up the courage to search the Rollins newspaper archives after I stopped by the hospital. He looked at Dimple. You probably knew the specifics of the accident I had with Matt, but I didn't. Her forehead furrowed. What do you mean by specifics? He scratched his head and blew out a puff of air. All this time, I thought I caused the accident. Oh, you poor dear, how did you ever get that notion in your head? I don't know. Maybe it's because nobody talked about it. Not my parents, not my friends, not my teachers or our pastor. Nobody. Kate leaned over to set her glass on the coffee table. What did you learn at the newspaper office? I learned that a neighbor pulled onto the highway from a side road and hit us as we passed by. I don't remember another vehicle, but the articles all said it was a pickup and the guy was drunk. A highway patrolman found us, said the other driver was still inside his overturned truck, passed out but not seriously injured. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Might still be there if he didn't get out early. Dimple sat back. Does it help to know the details of the accident? 
He set his glass on the tray and clasped his hands together, elbows on his knees. It helps, some with the guilt, even though I was driving on a highway without a license. I just wish I'd known about the other driver years ago. Dimple offered a sad smile. Please don't be angry with your mom. My guess is that she and your donkey, like the rest of us, thought you knew all the facts, that you realized you didn't cause the accident. A corner of Mike's mouth turned up. He cleared his throat. I'm sure you're right. My parents probably had no idea what was going on in my head back then. Kate touched his leg with her toe. Will you tell your mom about your findings? You should. Dimple leaned forward. Laura can fill in lots of details. Plus tell you what a mischievous duo you and Matt were. Kate grinned. I can only imagine. Hey, two against one. That's not fair. Mike grabbed another pastry and stood. I better head back. Kate shifted on the couch. I need to ask you a favor before you go. Dimple and Mike eyed her, waiting. I'd appreciate it if you and your mom, she glanced at Dimple, and you too, Dimple, would keep my location a secret. Mike's eyebrows tightened. I can't explain it, but it's important that as few people as possible know where I am. He stared at her. Everybody at the ranch will be asking about you. Just tell them, she faltered. She couldn't ask him to lie for her, but she didn't want Ramsey or Tara to find out where she was. Tell them I'm in a convalescent home, which is true, thanks to Dimple. When I'm able, I'll find an internship somewhere else, maybe Colorado. I plan to send out resumes this week. The smile, which had already begun to fade from Mike's handsome face, vanished and happiness sifted from Kate's heart, leaving behind hard, dry kernels of regret. Mike had been so joyful moments earlier. She'd popped his balloon. Again. Mike crammed his hat onto his head and started for the door. Then he was gone, the door thumping closed behind him. That's it for number 70, signing off. As always, thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.